Alright, if you have your Bibles, um, I'm going to be jumping right in with you guys, where you, where you guys have been for a while. Uh, we're in Matthew chapter 9 this evening, starting in verse 9. So Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. Kind of, we're kind of diving right into the story. So Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, page 665 in your pew Bible. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Then John's disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast a lot? But your disciples do not fast. Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me one more time? Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, would you be our teacher today? Thank you for the way that you um, have preserved these words for us so many years later that we can engage them, enter them, and be changed, renewed, challenged. And I pray that you would uh, speak to our hearts today, right where we need to be uh, met. And I just, uh, we give this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the things that I learned when I first got married to my lovely wife, Bethany, um, one of the things I learned was, was that there is a proper place for the mayonnaise jar in the refrigerator. Now, I did not learn this from Bethany herself telling me that there is a proper place for the mayonnaise jar. I learned this about myself when she put the mayonnaise jar on the shelf rather than on the door of the refrigerator. There is a proper place for the mayonnaise jar, the condiments, in the refrigerator. Can I get an amen with that, somebody? Thank you. That's the word right there. You know, so, uh, you know, it, the, first time, the first time it happened, I was just like, what is that doing there? It didn't really bother me too much, so I, I just moved it back to the door. And then, then it happened again, it was just like, wow, what is going on here? My, my, my world is shifting, my, my world is, is adjusting, and I don't, I don't know quite how to handle it. Um, and so my wife and I had a, had a lovely little talk, we just had to sit down, and I just said, Bethany... You know, I, I love you, but uh, you're putting the mayonnaise jar in the wrong spot. And so you need to put it on the door. So um, I, the point of all that is to say that this new relationship in my life, when I first got married, this new relationship in my life required 
new paradigms in which to operate. It required a new set of expectations, it required a new set of categories, it required a new uh, way to approach things. Thankfully, Bethany learned how to put the mayonnaise jar on the door, and we're all good now. Our marriage is lovely. But what we see in our text tonight is that Jesus has come into the world to do a new thing. This new relationship in our world wants to do a new thing in our hearts, and our hearts need to be ready for this new thing. Our paradigms, our categories need to shift and adjust to this new thing, this new person. Our text for today comes in the flow of things, as you know, in Matthew's Gospel, in the middle of these ten healings that Matthew has arranged for us in chapters 8 and 9. We're tracking along Matthew back in chapter 4. Jesus is preaching the good news that the kingdom of God has invaded, has invaded our personal space in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus describes what this kingdom of heaven looks like in his famous Sermon on the Mount. The kingdom of heaven looks at once like everything you've always wanted, yet seemingly impossible to achieve. Which is why I'm thankful that that first line of the Sermon on the Mount is there. Blessings on the poor in spirit for theirs. Theirs. The ones who are poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The ones who know they can't earn this kingdom of heaven life. The ones that simply all we can do is enter this kingdom of heaven life through Jesus Christ. So... 5, 6, and 7, Sermon on the Mount. Then in chapter 8, Jesus heals the leper. He heals the centurion's servant. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. He calms the storm. He casts out demons. Then he heals, in chapter 9, the paralytic. Talked about that last week, right? Healing of the paralytic, chapter 9. In the midst of all this healing and liberation that Jesus is bringing into the world, Matthew puts these two little discipleship stories in here. In uh, verses... 9 through 13 and 14 through 17. These two little discipleship stories in here. And it, uh, they they both take place around a table. Matthew has thrown Jesus a party. And they're sitting at this table. And these, um, these dialogue, this interaction happens around this table. Now, I don't know what your table is like at your house. But in my house, uh, things can get pretty interesting. Uh, we've got two young boys, six and three, and you never know what is going to come out of their mouths or other parts of their body. I'll just, just leave it there. Two young boys, six and three. I know it's definitely not like the Eldridge household with their prim and proper girls and with the ha- halos on their head, probably both literal and figurative. At our house, we do well if we can get through dinner with ketchup still on the plate rather than all over the, everything else but the plate. Uh, we'll be eating and one of them has disappeared and we're like, where did that one go? Where'd, you, where'd he go? And he's off playing Legos somewhere. And we're like, oh, uh, son, we're, we're not finished eating dinner. Come on back and uh, eat dinner with us. You haven't been excused yet. Come on back. Um, or they're, you know, they're putting their finger in each other's ear or or nose and just getting all up in their grill at the dinner table. It's like, oh my gosh. Uh, We'll try to do some table talk around our dinner table um, where on those nights that we're not Skyping with our our parents, who their grandparents who live in Texas a couple hours away. It works for us um, to Skype at dinner dinner time. Uh, We call this table talk time our rad, sad, glad, mad 
moment. So we ask Micah and Levi, so what was rad about your day? Did anything make you sad today? What made you glad today? Did anything make you mad? That's our rad, sad, glad, mad moment. Um, now, much of the time, Micah is, you know, he, he doesn't like being put on the spot like that, so there's no, um, there, a lot of times there's no grand revelation of what he's actually excited about. He usually says, everything was rad today, or nothing was sad today. Um, other times, we'll get some good six-year-old theology. Um, by the way, did you know that one of the... Um, Indicators of a healthy family, a strong healthy family, is how many times you eat together during the week. Some people can only do it in the, in the morning times. Other people can do it in the evening times. But one of the uh, indicators of a healthy family is how many times you're able to eat together. So I don't know what your table talk is like, but our table talk can get pretty, uh, pretty interesting sometimes. Uh, here in the midst of Matthew's story, in the midst of all these healings and miracles of Jesus, putting the kingdom of God into action, we have these two little stories of table talk. They both point to the fact that Jesus is doing something new in the world, a work that requires new hearts, hearts that have a greater capacity and ability to receive this new work, this new wine. So the first story has to do with social practices... The second story has to do with spiritual practices. First story is in verse 9. Jesus calls to Matthew, the tax collector, follow me. Now this is not the first time you've heard this call in the book of Matthew. Jesus has already called Peter and Andrew and James and John to put down their fishing nets, fishing gear, follow him. Now, this call is unique, as you know, in a couple of ways. First of all, this was not the normal way of rabbis calling people to be followers of their, them, of, of their teaching. This is not a normal way that uh, rabbis gathered a group of people around them. In the first century, rabbis did not go around calling people to follow them. If you or your parents wanted to study under a particular rabbi or in a particular school of a certain teacher, then you had to go to them, but the teacher didn't come to you. You had to go to that teacher and ask to get in, and if you met the requirements, pass the test, then maybe you got a chance to sit at the master's feet for a little while. That's still the way today, right? For the most part, you want to go study with a particular professor, you want to uh, go study for a particular degree, you have to jump through all these hoops to do so. It's hard work. And you go through all this work to apply, and it's still not up to you. If you get in or not, the admissions committee determines if you get in or not. Now, too often, people, we can think of getting into heaven as something like that, where you work hard to apply, you present your stuff to the committee. You know, the traditional picture is St. Peter at the gates of heaven. Why should I let you in? You know, you work hard to apply, you present your stuff, you hope you get in, you pace throughout your life, just hoping that, uh, hoping that you're good enough, hoping that, hoping that your resume uh, meets the requirements, hoping that, you're, um, that you've done more good things than bad things, and so that uh, St. Peter will let you in the pearly gates. But here comes Jesus to this tax collector, 
who most scholars think that uh, is the writer of this gospel that we're reading, Jesus comes to this tax collector, Matthew, and says, you're in. I want you. I want you to study with me. I want you to learn from me. I want you to learn from me. He, Jesus takes this, this initiative to enter our lives. God takes the initiative into our lives. Meets us where we are. Calls us to where he wants us to be. Jesus takes that initiative. It's, it's gospel initiative. He didn't go first to the church. Jesus didn't go first to the church, local church. He didn't go first to the Ivy League school. He went to the beach first. Then he went to the tax collector's booth. He went to the hard-working guys just trying to eke out a living for them, fishing for their family. And he went to the guys with money, the tax collectors. Jesus calls them to follow him. He commands Matthew to follow him. Follow me. Matthew didn't even apply. Jesus wanted him. I think it's because that Jesus knows that deep in the heart of all of us, we want in. We want in. We want in to what God is doing. We want in to heaven. We want in to real life. Jesus calls him to follow him. And he got up, followed him. Just matter of fact like Matthew just got up, followed him. So the call is unique in that Jesus is the one who initiates the call. The call is also unique in that it is to a person. Is it a real person. Follow me, Jesus says, a person. Uh, other rabbis of the day called their disciples to follow their teachings or to follow their interpretations of the teachings of another rabbi. Here Jesus is calling them, Matthew, to follow a person. Yes, we follow Jesus' teachings, we obey his teachings, but you can't lose sight of the person who's doing the teaching. Follow me, stay behind me, walk behind me, watch what I do, watch what I say, watch how I behave. Put that into practice in your own life. That's what Matthew does. He leaves his profession behind. Now, once he gets up from that tax collector's table, there's no going back for him. Uh, there's going to be someone else to replace Matthew at the tax collection's agency. But for Matthew, Jesus' way of life offered a far richer kind of life than Matthew could ever have known as a tax collector. The cost of discipleship for Matthew was great for him. He was probably very wealthy. So how does Matthew handle this cost? He throws Jesus a party. Um... You remember that scene from Field of Dreams where the guy crosses the baseline and he enters into reality? You know, on one side of the baseline is the fictional world from, from our perspective, from the viewer's perspective. Once, that, once he crosses over, the doctor crosses over the, the baseline into uh, the real world, there's no going back for him. I, I think about that for, for our own lives. Once we cross into and see the real world, the real reality that Jesus has come and brought into the world, we won't want to go back to our old, to the old false kind of world. 
So, Matthew throws Jesus a party. And look who is at this party. Matthew's other tax collector friends there. Uh, not only them, but sinners too. Sinners. They're the bad people. Jesus is having a party with bad people. He's hanging out with the bad people. Uh, these sinners, these bad people, were probably the Jews of the day who just didn't really care about going to church or reading their Bible or following the, the Torah all that hard. So the Pharisees were like, why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? These guys don't know what they're doing. If throughout the Gospels, especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the tax collectors and sinners was, were, were like curse words about these people. Why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus is eating with cursed people. And the Pharisees are incredulous. Now this is the first time where we, we really see the Pharisees come into the picture in Matthew's Gospel. The Pharisees are the people who take their Bible very seriously. They take their rules very seriously. And as a rule follower myself, <laughs> Um, my heart can tend towards Pharisee-like um, judgment as well. Oh, well, you're not following the rules. Or, or I'm following the rules and you're not. I must be better than you. I can tend towards that way. But the Pharisees' rules, they say that uh, associating with unclean people like these tax collectors and sinners makes everyone clean. Why is Jesus eating with these people? You know, those people. Doesn't he know that those people are what's wrong with this world? Doesn't he know that those people are the reason God has not come and brought restoration and redemption? Doesn't he know that those people are, are the reason why our nation can't get back to where it once was? It's their fault that the world is in the state it's in today. If we did things our way, the Pharisees say, then we'd finally have peace. Now, I'm so glad that we do not think like that today. That we have become enlightened and enriched and uh, sanctified enough where we don't think like that. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> Many of you know the familiar story about when the British paper, British newspaper, The Times... Um, asked a number of world leaders to respond to the question, what is wrong with the world? And British author, Catholic scholar, G.K. Chesterton, reportedly wrote back with this letter in response to the question, what is wrong with the world? He wrote, Dear Sirs, I am. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. I am what's wrong with this world. As long as we think those people, whoever, whoever they are in your mind, as long as we think those people are what's wrong with the world, then we are going to miss the work of the kingdom of God in our own lives. Our hearts will resist this liberating power of the gospel which totally levels the playing field. We scoff at other sinners forgetting, but for the grace of God. Go I. Let's be a church that welcomes sinners. That has dinner with sinners. That fellowships with sinners. If you think about it, we're all those people. And Jesus came for those people. 
Jesus came not for those who think they have it all together, but for those who know they don't. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's those who are sick. And so Jesus quotes the Old Testament prophet Hosea here to the Pharisees. Go back, read your Bibles, figure it out. Find Hosea. See the part where he wrote how God would rather have people extend mercy to others than to come to him with empty religious ritual. That Hosea 6 passage was not a very comfy, cozy passage for those who um, are self-righteous. God does not have uh, easy words for those who don't think they need him or who come to him with empty religious ritual. Their religion was getting in the way of the relationship God had called them to have with others and especially with him. Why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? Because that's what our Savior does. He comes to save sinners. Jesus came for me. I love the songs that we've sung today. Perfectly chosen. Perfectly appropriate for today. Amazing love. How can it be that you would die for you, for me? You, my king, would die for me. Christianity is the only religion, is the only religion in the world, by the way, with a God like that. God who uh, comes rather than simply a God who sins. God who comes. So that's the first table talk question here in Matthew chapter 9. Why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. I came to call, not the righteous, those who save themselves, but, the sin, but those who know they need a Savior. Second question pops up right on the heels of the first. This new work of God that Jesus is implementing in the world reorients our spiritual practices. Not just our social practices who we hang out with, who we spend time with, but our spiritual practices as well. Now this question, why do, you, um, why do we fast and your disciples not fast? Uh, this question comes not just from the Pharisees, but uh, who are serious about the religion, but it also comes from the followers of John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus Messiah. Jesus' behavior as this supposed religious teacher was... Um, Slicing through their worldview as well. Why do we fast, but your disciples don't? Now, fasting uh, was not, and still still isn't, an exclusively Christian practice. Lots of people do it. Lots of religions do it. Lots of people make a practice of fast, fasting. The Pharisees were fasting, but the question is, to what end? Pharisees were fasting to make themselves look good. Pharisees were fasting to make themselves seem holier than thou. They fasted twice a week just to show how serious they were about their faith. They wanted to be taken seriously as followers of the Torah. And that's what they got. That's all they got. They received their reward in full. They received the reward they wanted. Jesus responds to this question with three metaphors. A metaphor about a bridegroom, a metaphor about a patch on clothing, and a metaphor about wine and wineskins. Jesus asks, who in their right mind would fast 
Well, there's a party going on at this wedding, at a wedding, with the bridegroom. It's inconceivable. There is a time for feasting and celebrating the joy of covenant love. With Jesus, who is the ultimate bridegroom, preparing a great feast for his bride, the church, one day. With Jesus, there will be a day when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Maybe you notice that, the starkness of that, of that word. There will be a day when the bridegroom is taken away. Kind of foreshadowing the cross. And Jesus says, then they will fast. Jesus is protecting the fast here. He's not legalizing it. But he's protecting it. And he's giving this spiritual practice of fasting perspective. Uh, for example, Jesus simply expects his followers will fast at the right time. Fasting will happen at the proper time. Fasting will happen at the proper time for your life. But unlike the Pharisees who fast for show and tell... As an end in itself, Jesus' kind of fasting is centered on God, centered on hearing from God, it's centered on experiencing God. It's a time to reveal those things in our lives that control us, that are in our spirit, that have more sway over our lives than we would like them to. Uh, Richard Foster, in his classic book, The uh, Celebration of Discipline, he talks about how fasting, more than any other discipline, fasting reveals the things that really control us. And he writes this, he writes, Fasting is a wonderful benefit to the true disciple who longs to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. If you don't care about being transformed into the image of Christ, then this is not for you. So just, you can just tune this one out. It's a wonderful benefit to the true disciple who longs to be transformed in the image of Christ. We cover up what is inside us with food, other good things. But in fasting, these things surface. If pride controls us, it will be revealed almost immediately. Anger, bitterness, jealousy, strife, fear, if they are within us, they will surface during fasting. Now at first, he says, we rationalize that our anger is due to the hunger. Then we realize that we are angry because the spirit of anger is within us. Jesus is, uh, is liberating what it means to fast. Instead of empty oppressive religious duty oh, something I got to do just to prove that I'm a good Christian he liberates us to free us from those things that really control us what's new with Jesus kind of fasting is that instead of it becoming a burden of religious duty it is redeemed to bring freedom to those things other than Christ that have power over us Jesus gives his followers the dignity to receive more of God through this spiritual practice of fasting. Now, all of this is new to the world in Jesus' day. He's doing a new thing in the world that requires new paradigm shifts. This new relationship in the world requires a new form in which to take shape, like a new patch on an old garment, like new wine and old wineskins. You wouldn't think of trying to fit the new to the old. Jesus wants to do a new thing in our hearts tonight. He wants to do a new thing in our world. 
in your heart. Maybe, perhaps, it is a new spiritual practice that He wants you to engage in. Or a spiritual practice in which you abstain from something. Perhaps it's a new friend, a new social practice that He wants you to engage in. Perhaps He wants you to find a new friend who, uh, like Matthew, would have been ostracized and um, marginalized, hated in His society. I, I feel myself in my, own, in my own heart thinking about those people who, who I'd be like, you know, I, I feel the... I feel the resistance in my own heart, even just, even just saying that. Perhaps He wants your church to do a new thing in this community. Or, perhaps Jesus simply wants to remind you that what you already are doing is part of this new wineskin of the kingdom, new wine of the kingdom, where you show mercy to others more than follow the rules of how church is normally done. Notice that little promise at the end of, of our text, for, at the end of verse 17. Uh, people don't pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. The wine and the wineskin are both protected from utter disaster. The word is suntero, kept together, protected together, guarded together. The new wine, Jesus Christ and His kingdom. The one who says, lo, I am with you always. I am together with you. We are together in this thing. In the midst of all the temptations of vice in this world, as well as temptation towards legalism in this world, Jesus will guard you from ultimate despair and disaster. I love that imagery. The new wine inside the um, the wine the wine skin. The wine skin was um, you know it wasn't a little small little thing, but it was a you know kind of a good sized uh, animal skin that they uh, stitched together into into um, a thing that you could put the, put new wine in. But you didn't want to put new wine into the into um, old wine skins because the old wine skins had gotten bitter, uh, brittle, and um, had already stretched and the, the, the fermenting process of new wine would, would uh, make those skins burst. So you wanted to put the new wine into new wine skins so they could grow together. I love that imagery of when Jesus does a new work in our hearts and our hearts prepare for that new work, then we grow together. Jesus uh, you know, works that inside of us and our hearts begin to be shaped in the way that He uh, wants them to be shaped. Would you let your heart be shaped by this new work that Jesus has done, he, he's still doing, still wants to do in our community, in a world that needs to hear good news? Let's put that on display. Let your hearts receive the liberating power of this gospel. The liberating power of the gospel that frees you from empty religiosity, empty religious duty, frees you to prioritize mercy for others. So it reorients our social practices, it reorients our spiritual practices. And, you know, the thing that made it 
good for Bethany and me in this condiment in the door fiasco was the trust. Was the trust that was there. You know, this new relationship that I had in my life, because I trusted her, allowed me to change. Allowed her to change. Allowed our paradigms to shift and adjust and prepare for this new relationship. The new relationship that Jesus wants to have with us, um, you can trust that. You can trust Him to um, preserve you, to work with you, to be with you in whatever is going on in your life. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the way that you come to sinners. I pray that you would prevent our hearts from uh, empty religious duty at, at, the, at the expense of showing mercy to others. Help us to risk <laughs> uh, being misunderstood even by other churches, even by other Christians. I pray for Letter Street's Covenant Church that you would uh, help them risk being understood, misunderstood by uh, the normal way of doing things. I pray that you would empower them and encourage them to um, continue what they're doing and to um, be obedient to what you want them to do here in the neighborhood. I pray that you would raise up leaders. I pray that you would raise up um, folks with a vision uh, to serve this community, to show your mercy to show to put to, to put the kingdom of god into action in this community thank you for their presence here and their pastor let our hearts be changed be renewed receive this new work that you're doing we pray this in jesus name amen